Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury, my pronouns are she and her, and I am a lead engineer at Made Tech. Tuesday the 21st of September, I had a chat with Daniel Terhorst North. Daniel is an independent consultant who writes, speaks and does software development. We first met when he spoke at Agile Manchester in 2016 and he remains one of my favourite conference speakers. If you can get to hear him speak, I would absolutely recommend it. Anyway, Daniel has really interesting views on testing and what it actually is. So I was delighted for the opportunity to talk to him about just that. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Claire. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I'm so pleased to be finally talking to you. Okay, so let's start by introducing you to the world if they don't already know who you are. What is your current job in inverted commas <laughs> and how the hell did you get to this point oh good heavens my current job is i still pinch myself most days when i when i wake up and go what am i doing today i'm independent mm-hmm. so i run my own consultancy and i've been independent for about 10 years and when i'm being a grown-up i describe myself as an optimizer so what i'm trying to do is make things work better and that, those things can be software those things can be teams those things can be flow of value through an organization those things can be assurance and governance. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the thing is. I describe myself as, as enterprise manure, right? <laughs> so so I, if you put things in me, they'll grow. Okay. And I'm 30 years into my career. I've had two good ideas in my entire career. And one of those is questionable. <laughs> I've had two original thoughts in my 30 years. Everything else has been me riffing on other people's stuff. Mm. Yeah. You know, this is why I work really well with other people. Yeah. If you put me in somewhere, I'm like, I don't know. But if you say, why don't we do this? I'm like, why don't we do that brilliantly? Yeah. (laughs) You know? And so it's about how do you take the idea and iterate on the idea and riff on the idea and make it into something really special? Mm, Brilliant. Okay. So what we're going to talk about is testing. And I originally wrote down a question for you, which is why is software testing important? But since I wrote that question down, I went off and read your article, we need to talk about testing. Mm -hmm. And I decided that a better question to start with based on your article is what is testing? So this is interesting. That article took me from the point when I decided what the title was, it took me three years to publish. So it took me two years and eight months of procrastination. And honestly, and fear, like I put a lot out there when I wrote just a bit of context for folks who haven't read this article, because I'm assuming not everyone's read my stuff. I wrote an article recently called We Need to Talk About Testing. And to give you an idea of its arc, the working title was The Great Agile Testing Swindle. Okay. Mm. And what it seemed to me, and I'm talking as a programmer who's been around since the very beginnings of Agile. So the way I describe it is, you know, I wasn't a contributor to the Agile Manifesto. I was a very early consumer. And so things like BDD and a lot of that work uh, was was deliberately and explicitly derivative of that. It's very much, I describe it as a second generation agile method. It's it's inspired by and based on. And just for those that don't know, BDD is? Behavior-driven development. Okay. 
Yeah. So this was my reframing of test-driven development mm -hmm. because I wrote an article. It was the first thing I ever published, I think, it was about 2003, which was called uh, Test-Driven Development is Not About Testing. Mm -hmm. And I, I was trying to explain that it was a design method that had a bad name. Yeah. And that line of thinking led me to what if I reframed what TDD is, which I now call example guided design. So it's a design method that uses examples as guides. So example guided design is exactly correct. Behavior driven was a better intermediary name, but still wrong. Oh, was that one of the, your two original ideas? I'd say BDD was one of my, it was an original idea, but again, it's a reframing, right? Yeah. It's an it's original work, if you like, but it's very much derivative. Mm -hmm. So that's one of what I consider my two, my two actual ideas. Nowadays, I think of the canonical name as example guided design. And that comes from Nat Price and Steve Freeman's wonderful book, Growing Object Oriented Systems, whose subtitle is Guided by Tests. And that word guided, I was like, right, because... When you're writing software, whether it's commercial software, you know, internal enterprise software, whatever it is, the thing that drives it is customer need, business need, right? So you're using tests or examples or whatever to guide what you're building, but the thing that's driving it is need. If the need wasn't there, you wouldn't be building anything. So the word driven is wrong. <laughs> yeah. So this gets us to the definition of test then. What is a test? Well, now, this I really noodled on, and it was one of these boiling frog things. One of the things I noticed over a long period of time is that testers, the testers I knew, were becoming kind of more and more homogenized. Mm. And they were falling into this almost like a presupposition that you're an automation tester and you write automated tests or you're a manual tester, which is somehow either less or more, depending on which camp you're in, but a manual tester who just kind of cranks a handle and, you know, button presser or a manual tester who is an exploratory tester and they go and they come up with new ingenious ways to break things. But this, it just seemed like a really odd dichotomy to me, manual versus automated. And then I had this epiphany and this was what I, in probably 2016 or something. And the epiphany was this, is that all of that language comes from programmers. Yeah. And I'm a programmer, I'm a career programmer. If you ask a programmer about X, they will immediately think, which parts of X can I replace with software? <laughs> <laughs> and which parts I can't, right? Yeah. And so testing, if you ask a programmer generally what testing is, it's an activity probably to find bugs or it's a, there's a bunch of different definitions. There's a class I teach called Testing Faster. One of the things I do early on in the class is I get maybe 20, 30 people. I say, right, tell me what's the purpose of testing? And you get, you know, as always, like 20, 30 different answers. And amazing to what some people think testing is about. And, and often you get the kind of the very honest, candid uh, to tick a box. Yeah. You know, because we have to have done testing, because it's in our process, whatever. So I came up with a working definition of what I thought was the purpose of testing. And this was the thing is that I looked around and all of the testing training I could find, and even the testing literature was typically about various testing habits and tools and techniques and ways of testing. And no one was talking about why they were doing it. Right. Yeah. Right. There was no like, we're doing this because we test because. Uh-huh. Right. So I came up with, and this is one of these like very small phrases that's had a lot of thought going to it. And I started trying this out with testers. Well, I'm not going to ask Prego, I'm going to ask testers whether this lands. And the phrase is this, the goal of testing is to increase confidence for stakeholders through evidence. Fantastic. Yeah. So the first part of that is stakeholders. Right? I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for other people. So I think of testing like writing. 
you write for an audience. If you don't identify your audience, stop writing. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're giving a talk, right? If you don't know who's going to be listening, stop writing your talk. Decide who the audience is. Decide when you're writing or doing a talk or something, what behavior change you're looking for. What outcome do you want? What do you want to be different once you've done this thing? So a really good working definition of quality is what is it those stakeholders care about? So let's say one of your stakeholders is compliance, right? Quality for them is, is it okay to do this? Is it okay for this transaction to happen? Is it okay for these counterparties to know about each other? Is it okay for that medical information to be available in this system? You know, whatever those rules are, that's their definition of quality. And we tend to, when we're thinking about testing, we tend to just think along the one axis of functional correctness. Did the answers come out right? Mm -hmm. But if it's functionally correct and it's breaking the law, (laughs) (laughs) you probably shouldn't ship it, right? Yeah. So stakeholders immediately tells you what they care about, what keeps them up at night. And I'm sure there are much more formal definitions of quality, but that's my one. It's the thing that that stakeholder cares about. So we're, we're, we're testing along multiple dimensions and a stakeholder is really a, a cipher, a proxy for a dimension of quality. Mm-hmm. So security, you know, infosec. And again, you know, secure isn't a binary thing or a scale. It's not like, is this more or less secure? With security, you're always thinking in terms of threat. So what's my threat model? What am I defending against? And how well does this defend against that threat? And I didn't know that until I started hanging out with security people. <laughs> security people talk about threat models and attack surface areas and all of that rather than you know secure being a, a, a dial that goes from like empty to full yeah <laughs> that's not how security works yeah and if you're testing you're making sure that your software that your product is secure that it is compliant that it is predictable accessible observable so that what you're doing with the testing is you're providing evidence to the stakeholders that care about different aspects that you are providing that quality in whichever sphere it is. That's what you mean by testing. Right, and this is it. And the first part is slightly incorrect in that phrase, by the way. So I say increasing confidence for stakeholders through evidence. Increasing confidence is slightly technically wrong. It's actually reducing uncertainty. Okay. But reducing uncertainty is a lot harder to get your head around. So increasing confidence is is a close enough fit. So here's what happens. Without any evidence at all, you have a high degree of uncertainty about whether this thing is compliant or whether this thing is secure by your criteria Mm -hmm. or whether it's supportable. Because my operations and support folks, they are stakeholders too. So we're looking at operability and supportability and resilience are all aspects of, of quality. And the reason I first got interested in this subject is because I saw you talking about it and basically saying that the thing that I've always thought of as tests, because I'm a software developer, is basically unit tests because they're my favorites. They're my favorite things that I call tests. And what you were saying is they're not tests. Right. Can you explain that? Yeah, so let's take a look at that lovely phrase unit tests. And Kent Beck is utterly, utterly brilliant at discovering and observing and demonstrating things and really not great at naming them (laughs) (laughs) has been my general experience right test-driven development is one of the most powerful software design techniques i've come across in my entire career Mm -hmm. however when you describe it as driven by tests is no and no but also when you describe the things that you're writing as unit tests And what happened was when programmers back in the early 2000s, late 90s, were calling these things unit tests, testers were pulling their hair out. 
Okay, so that's a unit test. Yes, so you've got white box, black box, gray box, criteria, preconditions, postconditions, invariance, and, and, and they get no. Well, well, stop calling this thing a unit test then. You don't know what words you're using. You're just using words, aren't you? <laughs> and anyway, what's your definition of a unit? And also, you know, this test isn't a test. It's a single sample. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to or when you read what Ken Beck and the gang have written about this, the description is absolutely on the money. The description is, you know, we write this thing as a guidepost and we write a model client ahead of writing the code so that then we know that we've written the correct code. That's great, but you don't know that you've written the correct code. You're more confident that you've written the correct code than not having that code example there. Mm-hmm. So I think of it like mountaineering. You put a pit on in, right? And then you're climbing up, you put another pit on in. And if you fall, you're only going to fall back to the last pit on. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, if you're just doing free climbing and you fall, you're going to fall a long way. You're a lot more nervous, right? Yeah. So it, it allows you to make smaller moves. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. Made Tech are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. They've got such passion for making a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, that's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have free books available on our website at madetech.com slash resources slash books. And we're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. If you go to madetech.com slash careers, you can find out more about that. Turn to the interview, just a quick reminder that before the break, we were talking about the title test-driven development and how Daniel has come up with a much more descriptive name for that, which is example-guided design. So with this new definition of testing and this new awareness that actually what people are thinking of as tests are really examples that are helping to guide their design, what impact does all of this have on the role of tester? The idea there is somebody whose job it is to test. Who should those people be and what really is their role or really should be their role? I'm going to do the political thing. I'm, that's a great question. I'm going to answer a slightly different one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I need to back up a little bit from there to answer that question. Given that those code examples are just code examples, what does that mean for software development? And, and therefore, what should we as teams be doing in order to also be doing testing Mm -hmm. because we thought we were doing testing and we weren't and then given that how do our testers help okay yeah that's fine i'll I'll go for that i'm interested in hearing the answer to that question (laughs) okay so so what it means is we've been laboring under a false a a completely false sense of confidence and and this is the thing as a programmer we've got all the cognitive biases i've got the fundamental attribution error if it's a bug it's probably yours yeah (laughs) <laughs> right. If it's a bug and it's yours, you messed up. If it's a bug and it's mine, I was unlucky. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I write code and I, I think that I'm writing code that works. Yeah. And I know that it works because I typed it. <laughs> and if I wanted different code, I'd have typed a different thing. Right? <laughs> this is the thing I think I need to write. Yeah. So if you were to ask anybody in the world how confident they are about the thing I've written, I suspect I would be 
the absolute worst person. <laughs> but I'll be right on the yes end of the, of the confidence curve. So A, I'm the last person to ask whether it works. But also, as a developer, I'm almost always thinking about functional correctness. Mm-hmm. I'm always thinking about, right, here's the feature, here's the requirement, here's the thing. Does, does my code do what it's supposed to do? Yeah. I'm not thinking about generally about performance. I'm not thinking about availability. I'm not thinking about resilience. I'm not thinking about observability. I'm not certainly not thinking about compliance. I'm not thinking about legal implications. I'm not thinking about downstream load on other systems. There's a whole load of things I'm not thinking about because I'm on, on a time pressure and I'm trying to get this thing shipped. And anyway, it's busy and it's nearly lunchtime, right? And so I want to get the work done. And there's this wonderful, very famous response on Stack Overflow by Kent Beck. The question was, how deep are your unit tests? Mm-hmm. And someone was asking, you know, should you test getters and setters on Java, Pojos and whatever else? And Kent Beck replied and he said, I write as few tests as I can get away with because I don't get paid to write tests. I get paid to write software that works. Yeah. And everyone went, you can't say that. You're Kent Beck. <laughs> <laughs> you invented TDD. And it was brilliant because he's right. And so that says that there's now this yawning gap, right, of we've got something that we want to ship as a product, or I think of it in terms of change. Anything I ship is a change. I may have some stuff that's already out there. I'm shipping a delta to that. I may have nothing out there. So the delta is the whole product. But basically what I'm working on is change, 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 change. I need to think about the impact of that change. Is this change good for the product? Mm -hmm. And so testing then goes back to increasing confidence to stakeholders through evidence, right? I think I'm done. Let me pause Who are the stakeholders who need to know about this, who may have an interest in this? What evidence would they find useful? What evidence would reduce their uncertainty, increase their confidence that this change is a good change, Mm -hmm. is unlikely to introduce any regressions and all that? And that mode of thinking, that to me, that's test thinking. Yeah. And it used to be back in the dark ages, we called it impact analysis, right? You know, I'm going to make this change. What possible impact can this have? And again, one of these like unintended consequences of TDD, very early on, we had this mantra of like, you know, run all the tests all the time. So your test should be small enough and fast enough that you can run all the tests all the time, which is a great aspiration. Yeah. What it also means is you stop thinking critically about which tests should I be running because they're significant and which tests get dragged along for the ride because they're all cheap. Mm -hmm. And so we stopped thinking about the impact or change. And, and that impact analysis is absolutely critical test thinking. So now I can answer your question. <laughs> and I say this to testers as well. I say the least valuable thing, Ms. Tester, the least valuable thing you can be doing for me is testing. Right. Because even if you're brilliant at it, that makes you a 1x tester. Uh-huh. The most valuable thing you can be doing for me is getting everyone else in the team thinking like you think. Mm-hmm. Because now you're 10x. Right. One of the things that I really like that you said in the article is you talked about the scientific method, that it's about trying to prove that things are wrong rather than proving that they're right. You expressed it better than that. (laughs) So, yes, this is the whole essence of science. Science is asymmetric. You can disprove something. You can falsify something. You can't prove something. Mm-hmm. And so Newtonian physics was correct for three, four centuries, right? Um, and it's still a really good approximation. Yeah. And unless you're going very, very fast or you're very, very big or you're very, very small, Newton's physics works. And then Einstein came along and said, well, not quite. I said, well, how, what do you mean not quite? I can give you some examples where Newton's physics breaks down and my thing doesn't. 
and everyone went, ooh. And that was 1905, that was that was specific relativity. And then 1915, general relativity. And then it went, woo, again, because now we've kind of got gravity in there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Einstein turned physics on its head. And then quantum physics came along and said, you know, when things are really, really small, they don't act like you think. And even Einstein said, that's that's nonsense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my stuff's pretty wacky, but that's nonsense, right? <laughs> he never really bought the whole quantum thing. So what we're trying to do is falsify the hypothesis. And in terms of testing, we're trying to prove that things don't work. Yes. And, and the way I describe it is, is a good tester comes up with increasingly ingenious ways of failing to disprove their hypothesis. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. And the more ingeniously you fail to disprove it, the more confident I am in that thing. Fantastic. Brilliant. I love it. I think we've covered what I wanted to cover, which is wonderful because we are now out of time for talking about that. And I'm just going to go to the questions that I ask everybody. And there's one that I normally start with, but I forgot. So I'm going to do it now. Who in this industry are you inspired by? Um, I Well, I've been in this industry quite a long time. So I've been inspired by a lot of people during that time. I'm going to stretch in this industry because I think there's a lot of people outside this industry that I find enormously inspiring. Recently, I'm going to go backwards chronologically. Amy Edmondson, Professor Amy Edmondson, absolutely blows my mind. Psychological safety is one of these things where because both of those words are familiar words, you think you know what it means. You don't. right? (laughs) Until you read Fearless Organizations, until you read Amy Edmondson's actual work, I found myself reading that book and I thought I was pretty good. You know, I've listened to some psychological safety talks and that. And, and no, no, it's not the thing I think it is. Okay. It's the thing she thinks it is. And the thing she thinks it is was so subtle. It took, she, she came up with this thing 17 years before Google noticed. Wow. And it was only Google's um, Project Aristotle that made it famous. And that latterly made her famous. But she's, she's an academic. She's not in it to be famous. She's in it to move the, the field forward. And generally, I think that's probably true of the people who inspire me. Nicole Forsgren, another one. Dr. Nicole, right? Yeah, she's great. Massive brain, totally grounded human being. And she brought this academic rigor into our scrappy little world of software. Yeah. And I have enormous regard for people who do that because I don't. Right. I am Mr. Anecdata. Right. I've got lots and lots of examples of things. And sometimes people find those things useful. Mm-hmm. But I'm never going to claim to have solved stuff. Whereas someone like, you know, Nicole or Amy has the tenacity to <laughs> say, so I am going to go and do the legwork. I am going to demonstrate that this thing is a thing. Mm-hmm. And before them, Virginia Satir who was, she was the first family therapist. Ah. So before her, you had child psychologists who take a broken child to the child psychologist and they fix them and send them home. Yeah. And Virginia Satir said, well, well no, I, I need to work with the family. And, you know, the, the parents are going, don't be silly. Send Tristan home when he's fixed. <laughs> and, she said, and she said, no, she said, you don't understand. The child's behavior is a presenting symptom of the system of the family. It's like trying to fix an exhaust pipe. Yeah really important right if there's smoke coming out you need to look at the car yeah and so she would work with families as a system so she's one of the great systems thinkers she didn't call herself a systems thinker she called herself a family therapist and people like that with the tenacity and the rigor and the discipline to codify what they do mm-hmm. oh my goodness and in a much less disciplined way but still enormously structured way andy hunt and dave thomas the pragmatic programmer is one of those books I go back to every couple of years because there is just so much good advice. Again, distilled wisdom, and it's timeless. And so, yeah, there's a, I get inspired a lot. There are certain things that have genuinely 
changed how I see myself and how I see the world. Um, one other good example would be the goal, Ellie Goldratt. Yeah. You know, it, it, it completely changed how I see business, man. That, that's a big thing to suddenly have have twist in your brain. Like, I thought I got this. No, completely wrong. That's <laughs> awkward. Oh, well, <laughs> at least I know now. I know better. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Okay, the next question, uh, and I realise that I don't always explain to people why I'm asking this. It's a little game. So I'm going to ask you to tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing that's untrue, and then we won't tell the audience which is the true one and which is the untrue one, and then they have to guess, uh, but they'll only get the answer if they subscribe to the newsletter because we're mean like that. (laughs) I was just thinking about this. This may be in the form of a confession. So I'm going to tell you two things about me. One of them is true and one of them is untrue. I'm going to tell you which is which. Okay. The first thing is this. I am a member of the Magic Circle. Wow. I want that one to be the true one. Okay, what's the next one? The second thing (laughs) I'm going to tell you is this. I have told people that I am a member of the Magic Circle. Well, hang on a minute. That's messing with my brain. So it could be that you are, but you you haven't told anybody. Or it could be that you have told people that you are, but actually you're not. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, Wait a minute. But I, well, I mean, you've already told me that you are. So, I mean. (laughs) No, no, I told you that I told people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh no, and but before that I did tell you. Oh man, I love a paradox. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. So um So okay, well then let, let me let me reframe my, my initial answer. Um I'm the first thing I'm gonna tell you is I may be a member of the magic circle. <laughs> Okay. I I love the whole magic circle thing. My second novel was about a magician. And while I was researching it, I uh, got in touch with Paul Zenon, who is a magician based in Blackpool. And he invited me over to Blackpool and took me to see lots of secret things that only people in the magic circle know about. It was like, oh, it was fantastic. Nice. Lots of fun. I just love the idea of the magic circle. It's Yeah. And I, I like that they opened up as well. It's not a boys club. It used to be a boys club. Now it's just a magician's club. Mm, yes. And that there's an inner circle. Mm-hmm. And that you cannot apply to join the inner circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be, you have to be elected. By the way, have you spoken to Liz Keogh about fantasy writing? I haven't, actually. No, I didn't know. So she she wrote a book. One of the characters in her book was All the Pigeons in London. <laughs> I love it already. That is fantastic. <laughs> you should talk to Liz. I was listening to her the other day because I was listening to Randy Silver's podcast and I listened to her episode, which was about estimation and which I highly recommend. Okay, so... Last two things. What's the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so? It can be either work-related or non-work-related. I think it's not a specific thing. It's been a series of things, but it's the same thing a number of times. Okay. And that is one of the unintended benefits of working remote and being at home and things is I have a a three-and-a-half-year-old son who's utterly awesome. And just sometimes he's home. And he just wants to go play. Yeah. And I can just pop out and spend 10 minutes running around like a mad thing on the trampoline. Oh. (laughs) And we're squealing and jumping and and making loads of noise and all that. And he's like, right. He's had had his dose of daddy now. He's he's back to his toys. And it's just wonderful being able to be available and be present for my little boy. Yeah. And I'm aware that it's such a luxury. 
there's such a privilege that you know if I were working in an office and commuting and blah these are all moments I wouldn't have yeah I love that so that's just and there's I can't think of a specific one but just there's that that moment where there's that squeal yeah yeah and, and you are the cause of that squeal is just wonderful I know it's amazing my youngest is 13 now so I don't get to hang out with small children as much and I, I watched a film last night St Francis which is about a, a nanny working with a six-year-old I think five-year-old maybe and it gave me that warm glow you know just that wonderful feeling of being around <laughs> young children there's just there's nothing like it he's, he's a, obviously he's at a developmental stage practically every day there's a new thing certainly every week there's a new thing and he's putting together really quite complicated sentences and you're like how, how did you just do that? It was like a future conditional. What what was going on? <laughs> when we will have gone there and done that? I can do that. <laughs> You're three. Stop it. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, last thing. Where can people find you? Do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? They can generally find me on Twitter. I mostly try to be nice. <laughs> I lapse, but I mostly try to be nice. I'm at dannorth.net. I'm a very infrequent blogger. I'm doing quite a few talks at the moment. I spoke at Craft earlier in the year. I've got a go-to coming up, uh, uh, Jack's London. So obviously all of these are remote events. We're trying to get some more hybrid um, and things, but it won't be for a while. And on my newly minted website, which is now running on Hugo, a new static flat website, mm which is I'm very happy with, moved away from WordPress. I have a section there for upcoming talks, which I haven't populated, <laughs> which I will go and populate hopefully this week with several upcoming events. Brilliant. Um, easy way to get hold of me is Twitter or I'm on LinkedIn. I'm really bad at responding on LinkedIn, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm around. And on Twitter, your Tasta, is it Tastapod or Tastapod? And what the hell is that word? It's Tastapod. It's Tastapod and... I think enough time has passed that I can talk about it now. <laughs> no, so what it was, it was, this is probably about 20 years ago. We were playing a game of made-up word Scrabble. Okay. Have you ever played made-up word Scrabble? I haven't, but I want to. <laughs> it's the most fun ever. So it's a collaborative game. It's like Call My Bluff. So the idea is that you've got tiles, you've got a Scrabble board, you put down a word. Yeah. The only thing about the word is it has to be made up. Okay. And you play the word for however many points, like in Scrabble, and then you have to give it a definition. Ah. And if everyone else thinks that that definition suits that word, you get the points. Oh. Oh, I like it. I want to go and play it right now. Right. And, and of course, the long game for made up word Scrabble is to get a word into like regular usage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because Quidjibo is the obvious one. Do you know Quidjibo? No. So Quidjibo is a word played by Bart Simpson in The Simpsons, and, and he absolutely insists that it's a word. It's not a word. But it's such a great word, and it's also a great Scrabble word. I'm a big, big Scrabble fan. I play a lot of Scrabble, and I love to play, you know, high-scoring words. And Quidjibo is great because it's got a K, which is five points, W is four points, J is eight points, B is three points. It's got all of these amazing letters in it. So it's a great Scrabble word, and it's not real. But in our house, it's real. We're allowed to play Quidjibo. No, I think you're allowed. And Same with the famous episode where Bart describes... But he's been beaten up again. And he says uh, he's just so pugnificant. <laughs> That's a good word. Yeah. And then the caretaker says, uh, don't be stupid. Pugnificant's not a word. And the headmaster says, oh, come on. Pugnificant's a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. And so I've used cromulent in like business documents. You know, I think this is a very cromulent approach. 
Very good. <laughs> and I've, I've just realised that there will be a small number of people out there who are like me and will now be completely fixated on how the hell do you spell Quijibo. So just for the people who, like me, like to know how things are spelt, it's K-W-Y-J-I-B-O. So there you go, Quijibo. What is a Quijibo? What is a Quijibo? I would have to think about that. You know, I never have. I was quite happy for it to simply be a word that existed in splendid isolation without having to have a meaning. It's just the word that you play in Scrabble. So, Okay, so the next time we speak, I want you to use Quidjibo in a, in a perfectly cromulent sentence. <laughs> I think it's quite likely to be a widget. Like, can you pass me the Quidjibo? Exactly, yeah. It also might specifically be a remote control for the telly. Ah, okay. Okay, so so where, where's the PlayStation Quidjibo's gone missing again? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, okay. So this is now starting to work for me. So a tastopod is, it's an ironic word. Okay. And it is a small potted plant, either bought for or received from an elderly, typically female relative, often procured from a petrol station. So like a poinsettia at Christmas. Yeah. Is like your canonical tastopod. Okay. And it's from taste, tasta, the first part is tasta from flame root is taste. And pod is a middle English word for pot. Ah. So it's a tasteful pot. You see, so there's a tastopod. And so basically it's any small potted plant that you buy for or, or receive from an elderly relative. And did it originate in a game of... Yeah, I, I, I played it in Made Up Word Scrabble. And the reason I started using it in, in real life is it has eight letters. You can say it over the phone and it's spelt how it sounds and it's great for domains. <laughs> so I've got tastopod.com. Anytime I need to register somewhere, it says, what's your username? I just go Tastapod, right? Because I made it up. So, so either it goes, sure, that's available. Or it says, that's not available. And I go, well, that's probably me then. And I forgot that I registered. And I go, forgot password. <laughs> and it goes, here you are. <laughs> so, so that's why I'm Tastapod. Everyone, Tastapod on, on Twitter and, and all kinds of other places. Fantastic. Yeah, Tastapod on GitHub. So, so there you go. I love it. <laughs> the, my my favourite was Apiel. Apiel. So, so an apiel is a little bit of hair that sticks up at the top. But when you brush your hair, it doesn't go in any of the directions. It just sticks up. That's your apiel. Uh, oh, that's good. I like that. Clay, you've got an apiel. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's been so good to speak to you, Dan. <laughs> a real pleasure. Lovely to catch up. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. So early on in Daniel's career, he came up with the idea of behaviour-driven development, otherwise known as BDD. But he now prefers to talk about example-guided design, which is his preferred name for what used to be called test-driven development, or TDD. The idea of TDD being guided by tests goes all the way back to the famous book on TDD, often referred to as the Goose Book, based on the initial letters of the title words by Steve Freeman and Nat Price. But are they even tests? So Daniel's new definition of what testing is, is that its goal is to increase confidence for stakeholders through evidence. And it's really important that you start with the stakeholders. They know stuff you don't and might care about stuff you hadn't even thought of. And in fact, it's not even increasing confidence so much as reducing uncertainty. So unit tests are not tests so much as examples, hence replacing the term test-driven development with example-guided design. 
And if you rely purely on these examples to give you confidence in your system, you'll have a false sense of confidence. They tend to be about functional correctness, which is great, but you should also be thinking, who are the stakeholders? What is their interest? What evidence do they require? And that will lead you to think about performance, availability, resilience, observability, compliance, legal implications, downstream load on other systems. And don't just think about how fast your tests can run. Do impact analysis and use your testers to teach their testing mindset to the rest of the team. Use the scientific method to try and disprove the hypothesis that everything is okay. Okay, stick around for extra content. Coming up is our making life better section. And in this edition, we talk about supporting people who are struggling. So I just wanted to give a quick trigger warning that we do mention suicide. If you'd rather skip this bit, you can fast forward to around the 40 minute mark where you'll find us talking about time management. Working in the public sector means that at Maytech, we really care about making a difference. So for this final Making Life Better segment, me and my colleagues will be sharing small pieces of advice to make the world a better place. Today's advice comes from Chris Wilson, one of our client principals who has some advice on helping people who are struggling. Be a good listener and offer to listen. So Chris, tell me a bit more about what that means. Yeah, so it's been a tough year for a lot of people for different reasons over the last 18 months. And I've always offered to try and support people who are struggling with a number of things. And I try and do things like food bank drop-offs, helping to provide food parcels to neighbours if needed. Also offering to be a, a sounding board for those struggling with depression or lack of social contact. I think not being able to see family and all other manner of things can affect your mental health and well-being. And I've unfortunately had some male friends who, um, who are not with us anymore um, have decided to take their own lives. And outwardly, they've seemed perfectly fine and enjoying life. But you know, inside, they're being torn apart by the daily struggle. I found that quite difficult to swallow that, you know, right there under all of our noses, someone's been struggling so much with life and been too proud or embarrassed to ask for help. So I, I regularly try to connect with friends and family to let them know I'm available. I'm happy to listen. I can offer advice or I can be there just to be a non-judgmental sounding board. And sometimes people don't want to hear your solution. They just want somebody to talk to and for you to listen to them. So that's what I try and do. I think helping people get things off their chest, it makes a huge difference to allow someone to just talk aloud about their feelings without thinking they'll be judged. No, I absolutely agree with you there, Chris. Sometimes it is just knowing that there is someone there who will listen and having that sort of little olive branch of noticing that like, it's not gonna solve the problem, but it's a lot worse to be alone and sad than to just be sad. And so sort of reaching out, having those moments are really, really important. And I think that's wonderful that you do that. Yeah, that's right. And, and I'm also part of a large WhatsApp group that a bunch of old friends are part of. So that can be people I haven't seen for a long time or some people I don't even know very well, but they're friends of friends. So it's been a great opportunity for some of us to reconnect after such a long time in silence. And, you know, we use that to check in with each other from time to time, share a few memes and jokes or old photos of holidays or events that we don't want to share with the wider public. <laughs> you know, and I think that's really helped us all. So from my point of view, it doesn't take much to just kind of reach out to someone and tell them it's okay not to be okay and to be somebody who they can talk to without feeling judged. Chris, that's absolutely fantastic, mate. I really appreciate you taking the time to give that bit of advice. And I think it's something that we can all sometimes do with reminding ourselves that it doesn't take much just to sort of send a quick how are you and remind people that you're still out there. No problem. Thank you, Jack. 
every other episode, this last short segment will be dedicated to Hack of the Month, where one of our colleagues, and in the future, our listeners too, will share a life or a work hack. Our guest this month is Owen Piggott, one of our senior engineers, who's going to be talking a little bit more about time management, ensuring focus time each day that is uninterrupted. Owen, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that one? Yeah, sure. So thankfully, this is something that's now becoming a lot more obvious and mainstream in the workplace. You're seeing it in emails from Microsoft where they provide you with analysis of your time using MS Teams and in other areas. We're finally realizing that those gaps, those 30 minute or 60 minute gaps between meetings aren't anywhere near as valuable as turning them into one big gap of three hours and trying to keep the meetings outside of sort of your core work, which isn't just software development. It can be all sorts of things. It's been proven that we need a certain amount of time to ramp up. And if you've only got a small gap between meetings, you ramp up, almost get going, and then you're back into the other meeting. So it creates a lot of dead time. So I think that everybody should try and get, I'd say, at least two hour gaps where they're able to work in a focused manner on what they're trying to do. That's excellent. So do you use any tools in particular or do you like mark it in your calendar? Uh, just some general advice that anyone can apply. So first thing I do when I start my day is check my calendar and then it just gives me this insight into what's happening. You can obviously put in blocked out time in your calendar. That's a really good one where you just put yourself tentative to meetings and that can just make people question it a little more if you're invited to a meeting that might be too general or they'll ask, you know, who's really needed for this meeting. And it can save time as well because then you've got meetings with a lot less people in them because people are really questioning who's required in them. So it's good for other people. Absolutely. And especially when like Zoom fatigue is a genuine epidemic at the moment. So I think this is incredibly valuable advice. Well, thank you very much for that, Owen, and have a wonderful day. Cool. Thank you. And that's the end of another episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us ratings and reviews because it pushes us up the directories and makes it easier for other people to find us. Speaking of which, we've had three new reviews since the last time. Thank you to VG365, who finds the podcast easy to listen to and informative. Also, Cohen Study, who says, if you usually avoid corporate podcasts, it's worth making an exception for made tax efforts, which is really nice to hear. And then somebody calling themselves, I'm not drunk, you're drunk, says that the podcast is honest, genuine and eye-opening. If you want to see those reviews in detail, you can go to the Apple Podcasts app. I've got a few talks coming up. You can see the details on my events page on Medium, which is linked to from my Twitter profile. And you can find that at Claire Sudbury, which is probably not spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt E-R-Y at the end, the same as surgery or carvery. You can find Made Tech on Twitter at M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H and do come and say hello. We're very interested to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have for any content for future episodes or just to come and have a chat. Thank you to Rose, our editor, Gina Cady, our virtual assistant, Viv Andrews, our transcriber, Richard Murray for the music, there's a link in the description, and to the rest of our internal Made Tech team. Kyle Chapman, Jack Harrison, Carson Robb and Laura Plaga. Also in the description is a link for subscribing to our newsletter. We publish new episodes every fortnight on Tuesday mornings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.